Welcome everyone to Classics, Kane Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, art, film, and music. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I interview Father Alquin Hurl. Father Alquin is a founding member of the Franciscan Friars of the Holy Spirit. He and his fellow friars live in Levine, Arizona, in the heart of the Gila River Indian Reservation, where they serve the Pima Indian community. Father Alquin holds a Ph.D. in philosophy from the Catholic University of America and is an expert on the late great Etienne Gilson, especially Gilson's thought concerning aesthetics. Among his duties with the Franciscans, Father Alquin is the director of postulants and novices, which means that any man newly engaged with the friars goes through a lengthy and rigorous course of study Father Alquin designed, including a robust program in the humanities. I met up with Father Alquin at the friars' headquarters in Levine, Arizona. I hope you enjoy this episode of Classics. This is part two of a two-part episode. So here you are um, uh, here at the Friary in Arizona, and you're training young men. These are novices uh, in your order, and one of your chief responsibilities is to train them intellectually. So what does that look like? Well... um well, we have a reading list. We have this uh, itinerary of readings for the Franciscan Friars Holy Spirit Postulancy and Novitiate. It takes about 22 months to get through. Mm-hmm. And the guys um, live a life of prayer primarily. They pray about 30 hours a week. Um, you know, they have, you know, we pray about two and a half hours every morning and then go into the day and they pray later on. But, but there's a, a time in the day um, when they have what's called studium. And it's about three hours. Mm-hmm. Um, it's between... Uh, between one o'clock and um, and 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 four, um, with a break, a prayer in between. So it's really about two and a half hours mm-hmm. um, every day, and they read um, they read from the the reading list, mm-hmm. and we go through um, um, the uh, the history of 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 religious life, and um, you know, beginning with Anthony of the Desert. Mm-hmm. Um, they also and going through the life of Saint Francis, um, but also they also read the Bible in a year. They read the Catechism in a year. The whole Bible. Yeah, the whole Bible yeah. in a year. They do a Bible like a year Bible. It's about three chapters or four chapters a day, mm-hmm. and they also do the Catechism in a year. So they get that all. And there's something about doing that in a condensed time that you really get the whole of it. Um, and then uh, what we the. And it was mainly a lot of it is theological. It's a history of religious life. It's also there's also sections on prayer, um, but what's also spotted through with um, poetry, and um, we in in formation uh, the the Catholic bishops based on the documents from Rome, um, uh, uh, Dabo Pastores Vobis. Um, there's four pillars of formation. There's the spiritual human formation, spiritual formation, um, intellectual formation, and pastoral formation. Now, in our program, we've put a subset under intellectual formation because uh, of aesthetic formation, mm. where the men uh, learn about, uh, they, they, they learn to foster a love for beauty. And uh, we feel that that fills in the, um, you know, the intellectual philosophy and theology, which you get tons of during formation for priesthood, um, can be a little arid, can leave you very exposed, can he leave the heart exposed. Mm. But there's something about delving into the poetic and and, and, the, and being taught a love for beauty um, that um, kind of ministers to the heart. And, and by poetic, 
you mean beauty broadly. You're talking about imaginative literature, yes. poems, yeah. uh, studio art, music, even film. Yes, yeah, so yeah. they watch, um, well, I mean, maybe not as good as films as you have here, but uh, they, they do watch uh, classic films, and um, we uh, um, they read poets. So the first thing that I have them do um, when they come in and postulants is memorize um, um, Alfred Lord Tennyson's Ulysses. Hmm. Why that? Because uh, it's about going on an adventure, you know, and um, it's about Odysseus wanting to set out to find a newer world. And when they join our order, they're very much entering into a new world. Mm -hmm. And um, I want them to get that sense of adventure. Mm -hmm. And also just because he's, I think he's the most euphonic of the poets. I mean, just the, just his use, the beauty of the, the sound of the words. I want them to listen to the sound of, of, of Tennyson's, the use of the language and to kind of move them, move them into just hearing the experience, the, 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 the beautiful sounds of the poetry and, and then that rolling off their lips and um, just getting comfortable with their own language. Um, and then, um, and uh, it's partially also it, it, that poem inspired me and um, several of us to come down and uh, come on mission to the native Americans. Mm. And uh, so, uh, and then, uh, and then after that, um, I had I have them also read the Odyssey. Yeah. Um, but then, uh, um, so they don't even get close to any theological works when they first yeah. start, just to set a tone. I love this approach to to Tennyson that you described. The so you zeroed right in on the the sensual part of yes. the poem. So yeah. it, it, one could read that poem as you could read any poem, and. Uh, treat it kind of didactically and yeah. just um, unpack it kind of cold analytically but but one needs to enter into it I love that you have them recite it memorize it because yes. poetry is meant to be recited it's meant yes. to roll off our tongue as you say and, and and you need to hear it right so you've asked for them to to engage it fully yes. their, their whole their whole human person is mm-hmm. to, to to grab that that poem by the by the horns and, and make it their own. Um, it seems to me that that's part and parcel of, of the, the rich tradition that you are such a wonderful practitioner of. So, and I mean by that liturgy, yes. uh, language, uh, the, the, the measurement of the day by, by hours of prayer, yeah. um, the, the rich, rich tradition of art uh, in uh, Catholic history. Am I on to something yes. here? It's like this is this is why you, you pick poems yes. like Tennyson's Ulysses, it, it, which is not in and of itself is not a religious poem. Yes, but it's and yet it it it, it jives well with. Uh, well, with he's searching doing. for home, you know, and yeah. that's the Odyssey. That's that's similar between the Ulysses, Tennyson, and also the Odyssey. And why I haven't read the Odyssey is he's searching for the patria. He wants to go home, mm-hmm. and um, and um, he he's, and the guys are also in some way searching for a home. Mm-hmm. Um, when they come here, and uh, that's that's one of the reasons why they read that. Yeah. The it stakes just are does high. something to you when the, you read that stuff. It is, it does, and, and the stakes are really high in the Odyssey. It's like if he doesn't come home, Ithaca's yes. in disorder. Yes. So uh, it's uh, it's an amazing story, yeah, and his son is still not really not quite there. he's not quite there, and is you know. His wife is tremendous, but you know she, she needs him to come home. Yeah. The whole city needs him to come home. Yes, and uh, the um, and then and Ulysses the poem he kind of wants to leave again because he's getting bored. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it, um, the um, 
but there, there's also I want them to read the Odyssey and the Iliad, which they, they read both of those in their in their time in the 22 months because I feel that you can't really understand uh, a lot of what's happening in I mean uh, Newman calls him the apostle of Homer the apostle of civilization right mm-hmm. and Thomas and Augustine didn't read Greek very well Augustine didn't read Greek very well and we, we really are paying the price of that by de- depending so much on Augustine um, they, they so they didn't really promote Homer but Homer is um, very much a foundation and so you understand what's happening in the history of philosophy and poetry much better I mean if you haven't read the Odyssey and the Iliad you just don't really know what you're reading I mean in some way Homer is the, one of the best, maybe the best, the first. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the one that really asked the questions about mm-hmm. anger and about human life, mm-hmm. and 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 to, and to begin the kind of self criticism that, that that that's that's part of the and is essential, the essential part, maybe the essential part of what it means to be part of the Western tradition is that you admit that you're not quite sure what is the best way of life. Mm-hmm. You kind of doubt it. You wonder about it. You're not quite sure. You're open to a dialogue. There's always maybe something new that we don't know. And, and some inroads to that uh, in the Iliad. So, you know, uh, Achilles, you know, um, you know, playing and singing his songs and wondering about, you know, which which is the best way. You know, should I should I die young and be remembered yes. forever, or should I get out of here having been dishonored? Yeah. And you know, what's what's the purpose of this? You know, so he's really he's drilling down to questions about death. And then later on, when his beloved Patroclus dies and Priam's Hector's yeah. gone, the two of them meet. That, that's one of the most oh, amazing yeah, scenes yeah, in, yeah. In, in literary history. Yes. And, and so profoundly human. So human. Yeah. I mean, Prime, Prime lo- loses all his children. Yeah. I mean, it's just the ultimate grief and, and just and this, this fearlessness to cross the lines. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and he's got to know the city's going down. I mean, yes. once Hector goes, it's... It's, 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 it's just so human. Um, the... Uh, I know that the when I was a young student uh, at university, my first enc- I had no philosophical background. I went to a big public high school, mm-hmm. and uh, my first encounters with philosophy sort of really knocked me off. I, I, I could I could not deal with it. It was uh, it was too challenging, and so. But a friend of mine gave me a couple of the books that are on your reading list, so I, I got the. Uh, um, the life of Saint Anthony of the Desert. Mm. He also gave me the the little flowers of Saint Francis, mm. and uh, they were uh, very intriguing books and very encouraging. And uh, entering into those worlds uh, and reading those stories were very important for me. Helped me maintain my balance as a student. Yeah. I mean, they weren't philosophical; they were just uh, profoundly formative of, of my imagination. Mm-hmm. Well, St. Anthony of the Desert is living the philosophical life. I mean, much of the religious life, uh, and Pierre Adot really points this out, which is part of my dissertation, is going into what is the philosophical life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, f- the philosophy was primarily almost a monastic way of living, and they were doing that, you know, 400 years, you know, you know and th- after Socrates, it starts to become formalized with the academy, um, and they really start to live this kind of strict uh, mm-hmm disciplined life of intellectual dialogue and mm-hmm. a lot of them are celibate and they fast and they meditate and yeah. they, you know and that that grows and um and so anthony the desert when he goes out he's very much drawing from a lot of the practices of the philosophical schools which were so admired by you know um, by the early christians 
um, because of their morality and their strict morality. And so, um, in many ways, St. Anthony of the Desert is, I mean, he's following Jesus, but he's also following the tradition of the philosophical schools. Mm. They would meditate on texts. I mean, that's what those mm. guys did. They memorized the Bible, and they went out of the desert and prayed all the time. And mm. the, the philosophers are already meditating. I mean, that was a... That was a, a uh, a, uh, a direct practice from the, that that we pull. I mean, meditatio that comes from the the philosophical schools, and in, in, in many ways, it, um, and and it's it's it's. I mean, you can prove historically it's actually quite quite remarkable mm. how much we take from the philosophy. They they were organizing themselves. I mean, monasteries themselves are organized around philosophical schools. Origin at his philosophical school in Alexandria catechetical school that was basically a philosophical school um, Justin Martyr had mm-hmm. his own philosophical school what Augustine was doing was, was basically setting up a philosophical school mm-hmm. and that was the model that they used mm-hmm. um, to but then they would it would be centered on Christ as the true mm-hmm. philosopher so how, how would you describe the philosophical school of Antony of the Desert <clears throat> well they lived in, and he lived, went to a cave and um and he, uh, you know, he had a bunch of people around him, but he was totally in solitary at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were, they, they, he memorized basically the scriptures mm-hmm. and, and basically meditated on those texts mm-hmm. um, and, um, and lived it. So um, the fasting, the celibacy, um, a, a lot of that stuff was being practiced in the philosophical schools. Yeah. It's not. I don't mean to be. People get get offended because they don't. They, they sometimes they think it's like impious to not root it in the Bible, right? We mm-hmm. have to root it in the Bible. But mm-hmm. it's it's the much of. I mean, these were Greek. This is a Greek world, and yeah. and, and, that's, so, and that's the model that they had. So, uh, and um, well, what 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 seems a little confusing to me. So, if you ask me about Augustine as a philosopher. I can talk about Augustine and uh, his anthropology, and uh, I can talk about Augustine and his concept of nature, mm-hmm. um, Augustine and his concept of history, mm-hmm. um, Augustine and how he delineated between uh, the realms of the secular and the sacred. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can talk about Augustinian concepts, Augustinian yeah. ideas. So can, can you say that about Anthony yeah. of the Desert? So, so I mean, so what you're trying to put to, put back together what is essentially split off where um, you know the the so philosophy included an intellectual element in the with the, the Greeks to some degree although the cynics are people who basically they they, they in many ways give up not completely but the in, the intellectual element of philosophy kind of shrinks and in Plato's school that's a large part of what they're doing uh, but you also have the practices the, 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 and, the, and the community that they're the dialogue, the, the, the practice of the strict practices that they have. But then also then you have the cynics who are kind of on the other end where they're traveling around and they're kind of searching for truth. Think of Diogenes, the cynic, mm-hmm. show me a man, right? What, what, what's his doctrine? You know, does he have a doctrine? I mean, just like an Anthony in the desert, he doesn't really have a strong philosophical doctrine. But what's he doing? He's living a philosophical life. You know, um, some people think that Jesus Jesus was seen many by the Greeks as a kind of like a cynic philosopher wandering around, mm-hmm. preaching. Uh, and so 
um, Anthony of the Desert would be more in that that cynic category of, mm-hmm. of living the philosophical life, with the theoretical um, aspect of the philosophy shrunk down. And then in and, and this is Addo's thesis, and um, is that um, basically with Christianity, he, he thinks that that in some way Christianity destroys the philosophical life because it separates the practice of philosophy and puts that in the monasteries where they're living just an ascetical life. Um, and then the, um, the theoretical part gets separated from that and goes into just theology. So theology kind of subsumes the intellectual aspect of philosophy. And so he kind of um, sees that separation as kind of ruining the philosophical life. Mm. Um, but um, um, the point being is that the, that the philosophical schools had huge influence on, on the, pro- the way that, that monastic life was lived. And um, this isn't something that a lot of people talk about. So mm-hmm. this is a rather um, unique thesis, I think. But mm-hmm. I think it's, to my dissertation, I think it's true. Well, yeah, I, I could see it because they've, <clears throat> you know, uh, Plato and Aristotle both founded communities of learners mm-hmm. uh, that, although they weren't opposed to the polis, were certainly distinguished from it. And uh, the monastic communities uh, are com- are sort of standalones, and yet they have a, a broader purpose, right? A broader uh, ecclesiastical and, and uh, civic purpose. And um, certainly uh, living the life of the mind and mm-hmm. uh, wed beautifully with uh, the, the life of uh, prayer and uh, the service to those around them. The... Uh, so Francis of Assisi, the founder of the Franciscans, yeah. um, where does he stand in this story in terms of intellectual training, um, commitment to beauty, uh, yeah, the role I of mean, the poetic? I mean, Francis is uh, just this eruption of holiness. I mean, he's just such a unique saint. There's no one like him. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at, I just went to a talk by Father Paul Murray, a Dominican, Irish Dominican, um, and, and I was in London and he he did this analysis of, you know, the canticle creatures by St. Francis of Assisi. And he's like, there's nothing there. And that's, you know, that's one of the first poems in the Italian language. You know, Francis is an artist. He writes that poem. There's nothing like it. You can't even find, and Paul Mary is like, I have never found anything. And he's a, he, he's a, 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 uh, he's a T.S. Eliot scholar. Mm. Um, and so he knows poetry and he reads it all the time and there's just nothing like, like Francis's poetry except maybe scripture mm. but it's just this eruption of beauty you know and this reflection on creation um, so Francis had a poetic soul um, he was obviously had some sense, some education level to be able to write something like that mm. um, but he was a lover of God's beauty and he just let that kind of well up from deep within him and, and to come out through his pen onto mm. the paper and uh and so Francis was a poet. He, um, you know, when they, they, Anthony asked if he could study theology and they asked if they could study theology, he said, that's fine as long as it doesn't extinguish the spirit of prayer. Mm. It's a famous thing. And so he's fine with the intellectual life as long as, but he recognizes that, that there's a great threat to um, the, the, the spiritual life. I mean, the, the idea is that they live in the spirit and above all things, follow the spirit of the Lord and his holy activity. Um, 
and he's Francis is really reviving the life of St. Anthony of the Desert. He's yeah. really reviving the, reviving the Desert mm-hmm. Ambas. I mean, all true religious life in some way is doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and he's going back to Anthony. He's going back to the eremitical life. Um, and it's the same thing that Benedict in many ways is doing, but um, he's he, the Benedictines became so much a part of the fabric of the society that the Francis recognized that he, they, they couldn't bring any change to society by being being part of the Benedictine monasteries, but he had to kind of step outside of it um, and become not part of the system, and so that's what he does. Um, also, the intellectual element is, is definitely um, um, underlined by uh, Agnolus of Pisa, who in 1224 was sent by um, St. Francis himself um, to go to Oxford and to start mm-hmm. the friary there. Mm-hmm. And then that friary at Grey Friars um, became the largest building, I think, in Oxford at that time. Mm-hmm. I've been on the site just recently. Mm-hmm. Now it's a big mall, mm-hmm. but they have the outline of that, and they realized that I think that that was one of the biggest places. So the, the Franciscans were dominant in the intellectual life. So they went to study. They went to serve. What, what, what was the connection? I mean, they, yeah. they went to the schools. I mean, they went to okay. to uh, part, go to school and be professors. Yeah. And they mm-hmm. were, you know, I mean, Don Scotus was there, mm-hmm. and uh, so the 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 Franciscans really dominated the University mm-hmm. of Paris and Oxford. Well, I want to go back to something you said just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, so you said that. <clears throat> What Francis was doing was a revival of the Desert Fathers, yes, of the course, life of yeah. the Desert yeah, Fathers, yeah. and all um, the more sweeping statement is that all religious life, or maybe all, I think maybe all authentic religious life, yeah. is kind of a connection to or continuing with the Desert Fathers. Yes, can you flesh that out a little bit, please? Well, I think that so the the more activists move in religious life from the Jesuits onward, in some ways, not part of that. Um, they're moving more towards an activist kind of model, but the consecrated life from the, from before that is primarily focused on the contemplation of divine things and, and following the Holy Spirit and practicing the presence of God, or as as Benedict says, to listen, to be obedient to the voice of God, and then living this way of life where you're in kind of constant communion with God. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what Anthony of the Desert was doing. That's what consecrated life always meant. Mm-hmm. And we have this kind of modern phase where we think of religious life as these people who work all the time and run schools and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's... Um, uh, that's not in that would that's not in the original spirit of consecrated life, mm. and um, so and it's very much I think influenced by the Jesuit turn towards um, mm-hmm. activism, mm-hmm. and so uh, reacting to the Reformation. And it mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't mean that it's illegitimate to do that, but mm-hmm. it's primarily focused on active works mm-hmm. and not necessarily being bathed in in, in, the, in the spirit of prayer like Saint Francis. Yeah. It would not be something that Francis was at yeah. all interested in. In in Francis, um, you, you state as quite beautifully had this uh, w- wonderful commitment to creation, and uh, in a sense, he had his ear to it, he had his yes. his eye on it, and he and he let uh, creation work over him, just like um, a beautiful piece of art or yeah. a beautiful poem would work work over us. Um, so, how does that <clears throat> how does that fuel uh, your work with? Uh, teaching poetry, teaching art, teaching music—is it is it in the spirit of Saint Francis, or is it is sort of like there's Francis think, and then there's Gilles Sand? And, I think uh, it's uh, more. Yeah, I, 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 uh, yeah I, I see it as coming from Francis, who loved beauty. Mm-hmm. Francis is definitely a lover of beauty. I mean, he would go and pray, and all the places you go. I mean, Sisi's just a beautiful city, mm-hmm. and it's just 
a fundamentally aesthetic place. Mm-hmm. And uh, all the places he went and prayed, they're all beautiful. He never went to an ugly place to pray. Mm-hmm. Um, he loved beautiful places high up in, in the hermitages and loved the beauty to pray and the beauty of nature. Um, and um, um, so, yes, their introduction to the, the life of beauty very much comes from that. And um, But also my influence with Chilson in some way, um, we see ourselves as builders of culture, and so you don't, you can't effectively build culture um, without having a sense for beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and because what is what is art ultimately, and this is Gilson's position, um, is that art is primarily not knowledge. And he was just absolutely strict about this. We have this tendency to think of aesthetic knowledge as kind of this kind of different form of knowledge this kind of rational knowledge and then there's this aesthetic form it's like sense knowledge in some way we're not comfortable with anything uh, unless we define it as knowledge and Gilson just completely rejected that and that's also a rejection of Maritain's understanding of it who would Um, would call it irrational right yeah Yeah, it'd be like like, irrational knowledge but Gilson just just, just, that would drive him up a wall because he felt like you're just reducing you know art to just another form of kind of it's like a subset of knowledge and, and it's just this modern you know discomfort with anything not being in some way knowledge anything mm-hmm. that's worth anything is knowledge where Gilson understood that 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 art was primarily creation that it was something new that it was it was the the the, the art wasn't in so much giving a new knowledge to the viewer but taking the heart of the viewer breaking it apart and putting it back together in a new form hmm. And it's something that ultimately changes the viewer um, and uh, has this transformative effect of the viewer. And so he, um, uh, and, and that even the, 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 the medium for the artist is not so much the materials, but it's, it's the heart of the viewer. And so the, 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 the artist is, not, is using the materials as a medium through which to do his true artwork, which is that new creation in the heart of the viewer. Mm-hmm. And so for Gilson kind of trains the person, and I do this with the novices, is that you have to yield yourself to the pain of the beauty of the art. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, and I, I talked to him about uh, uh, Baron Boehm, who talks about how no, no piece... No, no piece of, uh, of, of music either just smiles or just frowns. It's always both. Mm. And there's just that pain in art. And a lot of people never get past that uh, because it's just there's this inner pain and you have to allow the artist to do so. You have to be vulnerable to the art and allow the artist to do what he wants in your heart through his medium. Um, and um, so you can be in some way recreated and that you become the, the work of art. Um, and so that transformative aspect of art, that, that it's a true piece of creation, that it's a new creation every time a viewer even looks at it. With great art. I mean, I'm not talking about lower level, but great art does something new in viewers each time. And each time, that's a new piece of art. Mm-hmm. And Gilson wanted to, you, you can't just uh, reduce it to just some kind of one piece of knowledge that you yeah. got one time. Yeah. Is that each time you feel that electric power go through you when you look at, you know, uh, the Sistine Chapel creation. Um, and it just does something within you. It, it, it has this kind of, and you yield yourself to the, the hands of Michelangelo, then, then you can have this aesthetic formation within your heart that creates something completely new. And so that's what I train the, the, these guys to do. Wow, that's wonderful. That reminds me of a, a line from one of my favorite poems. Uh, Seamus Haney might have been the greatest 
poet in the English language of the last 50 so years. Mm-hmm. His kind of breakout poem is called Digging. He, yeah. You know that poem, yeah. yeah. So, so I read your, I read your yeah. interpretation of it. Oh well, well. So towards the end of that poem, uh, you know, he says, uh, having reflected on his father and his grandfather, and all the sounds and the sights and the smells and the feels of, of working the the potato drills yeah. and the and the peat bog, he says, um, all these things awakened living roots in my head. Yes. And so, uh, and and listening to you I think that's exactly what Haney does for us then it's like he, he awakened for me having never seen a potato drill or or a peat bog yeah. he awakened in my head these living roots yes and and, and uh, there, there's a, a wonderful um, scholar of poetry named Helen Vendler at Harvard she's emeritus now uh, she says that poetry sit, sit, situates us in the world yes yeah and so which is a it's not nearly as beautiful a way of saying what you said, but I, I think that's I think what you've said is is exactly what she would say poetry ought to do, or or any art form really gives us a place in the world. It does, yeah. uh, um, and so that's that in some way is creating a home for us. And uh, um, I, I, I also give them early on when they first come in a, a reading from this book called Mountain of Silence. It's about the monks of Mount Athos, and um, one of uh, it's you know the famous stories of the novice master and the the, the new novice coming in, and the, the new novice comes into Mount Athos, and he's ready to read the Philokalia and all the great fathers of the church and to enter into the Jesus prayer and to fast and do all this stuff, and the, the novice master hands him um, David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. <laughs> And the, the young Greek novice is just scandalized. Why would you give me something from the Western? You know, that's, that's yeah. the papist West and this Dickens. He barely even believes in God. Maybe he maybe believes in God. He wasn't a Christian. Why would you give me David Copperfield? And he said, because, um, because asceticism, the life of asceticism and the philokalia will turn you into a spiritual monster huh. if you don't learn to have littleness like Davy. Yeah. And so um, I give them that, and then I give them David Copperfield, which is the first novel that they read, so that they can learn littleness. Yeah. And, uh, and there's no one better on littleness than, than St. Francis and Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens, in many ways, chan- channels Francis of Assisi to the 20th century. And um, and especially Davies is yeah. is, is has a, I mean Oliver they're all, I mean Pip they're all, they're all little right there's all yeah. it's all the virtue of being humble and yeah. and that the best way of life is to be little yeah. and um, and so that's in some way the guys are not ready for to read like a lot of the guys who come in they want to read John of the Cross immediately it's like the first <laughs> thing they want to read you know and I'm just like guys let's just let's read let's read David Copperfield first let's yeah. let's learn how to yield our, our hearts to the beautiful and um, it's because the, those those kind of works they, they also they always want to fast all the time and do all this intense stuff and I let them do that because this is a time for experimentation young men you gotta let the ponies run and they do that I let them do that I limit it a lot but I, I, I do, do let them do that but at the same time I also have them read uh, you know David Copperfield so they can learn littleness uh-huh and um, and that 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 may, so that they don't become spiritual monsters mm-hmm. through an ascetical life. Mm. You have them read the Brothers Karamazov too. I do, which and is about the about a novice, as you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, the the protagonist is yeah. a novice himself. And and just for our readers, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you you deal with 
postulants and novices, right? Yeah. And yeah. Can you explain? Yeah, they're postulants for four months, and then they be, they take the habit after four months. Okay. And then they're novices for the rest. It's a total not postulant slash novice experience for twenty two months. We take them up to the mountains first, by the way, before they start reading po- poetry. They we, the mountains we here above the no, reservation. We, no, in Colorado, we oh, go Colorado. through fourteen thousand two two fourteeners, fourteen thousand foot mountains. We go on about a ten day nice. um, um, hiking trip. So we first enter into the beauty of nature and brotherhood. And it's I tell them it's not a vacation. It's very hard. It builds us together. We climb mountains and yeah. and then the, we go reflect on it later. So first action, then reflection. Yeah, that's great. Um, so back to the brothers Karamazov. Yeah. yeah. So Alyosha is is a novice, and uh, uh, how do the how do the brothers take to that story? Your, they they your really Francis like it. Brothers. I mean, they love Zosima, um, and um, um, a lot of them really love Mitya um, mm-hmm. and Ivan, of course, and just the dialogues mm-hmm. of what it's like. And um, um, they they love it. I mean, they they get way into it, mm-hmm. and um, they they get carried along by it, and mm-hmm. um, the intensity of. I mean, I think the virtue of Dostoevsky is that it launches you into the mystery of God and the question of God and, mm-hmm. and really takes seriously the, the question of evil. I mean, that's really, mm-hmm. you know, I think um, it's important for these guys to face that seriously, you know, and, and to ask that. I mean, he really makes the, the, the greatest argument for the non-existence of God. I think mm-hmm. Dostoevsky's the best. I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's the best of the atheists in a certain way because he actually makes the real case on on why there is no God, um, and he also makes the best case on why there is, uh, there truly is God, mm-hmm. and I think he does that all in one book. And 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 there's something about you know the modern novel kind of puts God off stage in a certain way. I mean, you know, Jane Austen. How many times did she mentioned God? Like hardly ever, right? I mean, mm-hmm. a little bit here and there. And that doesn't mean God's not part of what she's writing, but there's some sense in which the modern novel doesn't do that. I mean, Dostoevsky goes the opposite way. I mean, every page is just constantly launching you into the question of who God is and mm-hmm. whether there is a God and what kind of God would have a world like this and, and, and also that, that we live in a world that needs God's mercy. Um, Zosima, I think, is the central figure, especially at the beginning, as you know, and he um, is the Christ figure and... Um, you know, he he has a kind of a radical Christian. I mean, almost like there's like these, you know, almost these extreme elements where where you you kind of the the religious is the worst of the sinners, and the guys don't like that. Mm. It really challenges their view. They don't. They many guys who come into religious life come in because they see themselves as sometimes rather virtuous. Mm. Um, and not as the worst of the sinners, and Zosima uh, flips that on their head, mm-hmm. and and so that's that's one thing that really challenges them. Mm-hmm. Also, um, you know, Alyosha leaving at the end and then being directed by a spiritual father to leave mm-hmm. um, is uh, is challenging to them. You know, and, 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 and in some way, I, I like them to read that at the beginning of the novitiate to know that, you know. Sometimes people are called to the novitiate, but not necessarily called to go on. You know, there's mm-hmm. the door is always open. Mm-hmm. You have to be open to what God wants to say to speak to your heart. Mm-hmm. And Alyosha went, and he didn't even know, even understand why he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but he followed the instructions of a spiritual father. Who by that time, was even dead. But uh, what a great program! Yeah. Um, let's talk about one more thing here at the end of our, our conversation, and that is the. The, the, the Franciscan friars of the Holy Spirit have responded to a calling to be here yeah. on a Native American Indian reservation. Uh, the 
Pima and the Pishwa Indians uh, locally. So you have talked so eloquently about about beauty and truth, and mm-hmm. uh, you've clearly got a great program going on with your your postulants and your novices. How does how does the your presence here, you, you and and the other friars, your presence here? And this way that you're talking about learning and, and living the philosophical life as Christians, as as brothers uh, in the Franciscan Friars of the Holy Spirit, how does all that impact your presence and your work among the natives who are your neighbors? Um, can I say how they impact us? Yes. Um, I mean, they are, uh, they are a different culture and I mean, they wear blue jeans and they don't wear, they're not wearing buckskin and, you know, I mean, they, they live in modern homes, but they are a different culture and in many ways a non-Western culture and, and then in that regard, a communitarian culture and, um, you know, um, you mentioned you saw them sing that song. The young boys sing that song. So you see these kind of young yeah. boys. They're they're all like you know, just look like kind of normal young eighth graders, and they're acting out and throwing airplanes. And then and then then all of a sudden, like sister asked them to sing a song, and they just lock in, mm-hmm. and they start to you know beat on their desks, and mm-hmm. they all in unison, and they sing this beautiful song all together. Beautiful throaty yeah. male yes, voices, just all in. and and they sang for a long time. Yes, and it they was, always go long. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing that, that that in many ways the Pimas have taught us to just be, just be, and that's and and working with them is you just have to spend lots of time with them, mm-hmm. and um, and the songs are and the dancing is the dances go on forever. I, I got I, I they have this something called the community dance. Um, which and, and the songs, the dance, they're all really mellow. They're all very, very slow, but also very, very long. A not real high emotion, but just very relaxed, passive almost. But it's really an expression, I think, uh, of this kind of togetherness that the community that they have, this union with one another, both in their community dances and also their songs. Um, and uh, they, they, they use song and dance as a, as a way to express their oneness with one another and also with God. Um, and it's a big time investment uh, to, to, to be engaged in that. But um, they've really, I think, taught us to slow down, to, to be. And then and I think that's what St. Francis is all about. And their culture is, you know, imbued. Their Christianity is a Franciscan Christianity. They were evangelized by the Franciscans in the 1890s. They welcomed them here. Tosh Quint was the great... Um, spiritual chief uh, of this from District Seven from here, who invited the Franciscan priests to come in, and they, um, and, and most of the missions were like that, where they invited people in to evangelize them. And um, these hummingbird songs were given um, at the, around that time um, the, to the Native Americans, where um, a, a hummingbird um, down actually in District um, Two, Ashan Cook. Um, gave a man uh, a series of songs of the, the life of Jesus, um, and that's the mysteries in the life of Jesus, including Jesus' temptation with the devil in the desert. Um, and they have all these songs that they all sing, and this is 
part of their 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 faith, their Christian faith, revolves around these songs that supposedly a hummingbird gave them in the mountains, <laughs> and they sing those songs very very proudly, um, and um, so th- their faith is expressed in art of song and dance uh, very much, and um, they're a quiet people. They're they're a very relaxed people, um, and um, they're teaching us also to be quiet and relaxed. So um, they also paint very beautifully. And they've given paintings to us, and they're very, very generous that way. Um, and uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of social difficulties, though, as you know, with mm-hmm. the alcoholism and uh, um, abuse, uh, domestic violence, uh, very, very heartbreaking stuff. Uh, diabetes has really taken its toll on the reservation, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're here to just be Christ in the midst of uh, um, the difficulties on the res, but also to learn from them um, how to be good Franciscans because they if anybody can preserve a tradition it's the Pima people they're just they're just they're cryogenic by 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 nature <laughs> all the natives are they just preserve things they've prever- preserved traditions and they very much have preserved the Franciscan you know spirit mm-hmm. of uh, loving the beauty of nature and, uh, and and loving God above all things mm-hmm. so uh, so that's what we're doing I, th- I don't know if that's what you asked but I don't know if that's what I asked yeah, okay. either, but yeah, I'm, kind of, I, I got going. caught up in yeah, your answer. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> Whatever question yeah. you answered, I love it. <laughs> hey, thank you so much, uh, Father Alquin. This was uh, a great opportunity yeah. for me to sit down and hear from you, your wonderful story and uh, great insights. Um, the It strikes me that the, that the life that uh, your community is living and your description of the, the community here that you're uh, living among uh, here uh, on the reservation is just uh, a great expression of of, uh, of the beauty of creation, the beauty of, of God's yeah. grace, His presence with us. So it's uh, I I hope more people get a chance to visit and uh, to see you mm-hmm. and uh, to see the the uh, the folks here on the reservation. Thanks so much for taking time yeah. with me. It's great Thank to see you. you again. Thank you. And please yeah. please pray for our mission. I will. this episode of classics we have other great episodes coming soon so stay tuned keep that conversation going and bring your family and friends next time be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on apple podcasts the producer of this podcast is helen desell zorneman i'm andrew zorneman your host for all of us at kane academy thanks for listening to classics